Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Representative Ed Case has been back at home in the islands for the past eight weeks working remotely while the House has not been in meeting in person in our nation's capital recently because of this health crisis. We talked to him this morning about the federal funding meant to ease our economic pain as well as the decision to postpone the military war games, RIMPAC, until later this summer. Congressman Case sits on the powerful House Appropriations Committee. I was in Washington the week before last. That was a, a surreal uh, trip uh, back there through empty planes and empty airports to Washington, which was, you know, we were not socializing with each other at all. Uh, the vote on the floor of the House was, was a very surreal experience itself. But other than that, I've been home and uh, sitting right where I am right now, which is in my back room in my house. The uh, headlines in the paper today talked about how states with the fewest positive cases of COVID-19 got more federal aid, and Hawaii was one of a, a handful of states that got singled out. Well, I think, you know, first of all, we have definitely worked hard as a delegation to be sure that we, we in Hawaii have been able to fully access the federal emergency assistance and the CARES Act and the other legislation. But let's not forget that we have great needs uh, here in Hawaii. The reason, uh, one of the prime reasons that we um, have done so well from a public health perspective is that we have really shut down and we have shut down our, our, our entire tourism industry, our number one industry. So there are needs that are great here in Hawaii, far greater than the rest of the country from an economic perspective, and, and, and those needs uh, should be addressed. So uh, the fact that we did the right things on the public health side doesn't mean that we haven't been impacted. But it is kind of startling when you look at it that we got $2 million for every positive test uh, compared to someplace like New York you know, which just got slammed with the COVID fatalities and yet only got, you know, a small uh, proportion. Well, again, New York, New York does not have the economic impact that, that we have here. Um, and we, you know, uh, New York was clearly at the front end of the, of the uh, pandemic, so it didn't have as much time to prepare and get measures in place as we did here. Uh, so I think we did the right things from a public health perspective, but they were tough and they had major impacts. We have for example, the, the highest level of small businesses in our entire country. And so small businesses throughout our country have been more severely impacted by the pandemic, and our small businesses here are dependent on tourism. So that's a double whammy right there. So we worked very, very hard as a, as a delegation with our local financial institutions to get that aid out to our small businesses, and we're pretty successful at that. So how are you looking at the decision-making here on the local level with reopening up uh, some of those small businesses as early as this week? I take this from a public health perspective. I take this from a what does the medical community, the best medical advice council, and starting from that point, uh, how can we start to reopen our economy that preserves the advances that we have made on the public health side with COVID-19? So I take a pretty cautious approach on, on reopening our, our economy, and I don't want to take unreasonable chances that we will have a significant decline again, in the public health side of things, because, you know, number one, if that happens, you know, people get sick and die and, and medical facilities are overwhelmed and, and all of the public health consequences that we were concerned about. But number two, if that takes our economy back down, the result of that is going to be far worse than had we done it cautiously and reopened carefully to start with. So do you think we're adequately prepared as far as testing and contact tracing? No, but but then again, nowhere in the country is adequately prepared today on full testing, full contact tracing, at least what the medical uh, professionals uh, counsel is necessary to really be able to reopen to a, a substantial extent where you actually can test and you actually can carve out safe zones throughout the state where you have a, a, a quite low chance of contacting uh, COVID-19 or you where you can feel safe. And let, let's remember that that's key not only from a public health perspective, but also businesses are not going to be able to function, especially tourist-related businesses, if people don't feel safe getting on planes and getting off planes on the other end, and if we don't feel safe with our tourists uh, coming back. And so we are closer to prepared for that uh, than much of the rest of the country. But that doesn't mean we're entirely ready to just, uh, you know, go 100% because we have adequate testing, adequate contact tracing, adequate surveillance, adequate uh, hospital facilities that can handle any kind of a surge. None of those things is yet where it, it um, should be. And any ideas how we can better screen our visitors coming in or our return residents coming in 
from uh, travel abroad? First of all, I believe that, you know, I think we all realize that the solution that we have arrived at thus far, which is, uh, you know, essentially a self-enforcing quarantine, getting off the plane for both returning residents and tourists is, is largely not working. It could work if people actually did a quarantine, but the evidence is pretty overwhelming that many people are simply ignoring that. And we do not have, at least as we sit here today, the resources to devote to really 100% enforcement. And so where that leads me is to the conclusion that we ought to be doing that testing that tracing, that enforcement, if you will, before people even get on the plane to start with. And so I'm definitely pursuing um, a, an initiative under which the airlines would need to test at the point of departure, not at the point of entry. People are here, get out of the airports, it's too late, they're already here. Versus uh, saying to people that get on a plane in San Francisco, look, we're going to do a quick temperature check of you before you get on this plane. And if you don't check out, then you can't get on the plane. I think I think we're going to have to move in that direction. We just saw a decision by the military to postpone RIMPAC and to focus on, I guess, on the water exercises versus allowing um, a lot of folks to come on shore. You know, I think people here in Hawaii were watching the situation in Guam with the aircraft carrier and um, are just a little concerned. But at the same time, there are businesses that rely on the military, because uh, it's our number two industry after tourism. So how are you looking at that? Well, I think the military did the right thing. I think that um, I did not agree with those that that believed we should cancel RIMPAC altogether. RIMPAC is an incredibly important joint exercise between us and our allies that is absolutely necessary to our country's uh, national defense uh, in, in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. And so um, there were major consequences to not conducting a RIMPAC at all. But the move from the standard rim pack of, you know, thousands of folks on ships and, and otherwise coming in for, you know, shore leave and Pearl Harbor and coming in and out of Pearl Harbor, uh, that was not going to work either. That was simply um, unsafe. And I think the military acknowledged that from the perspective of both uh, the people that were participating as well as the civilian community and moved to an all-sea uh, rim pack, which is, you know, the functional equivalent of social distancing in the military exercise context. And to try to try to get the training that it needed in, in terms of really a, a more of, a, of an onshore virtual impact with an active offshore component with uh, very, very little contact uh, back with Hawaii, I think was entirely appropriate all around. And we have seen the effect of this virus, you know, on the cruise ship industry. And when we look at our military readiness and our our aircraft carriers, you know, that that is a concern about how we keep our military men and women safe when they're in close quarters like that. And, and, and given what we know about COVID-19 now, about passing the virus on when you have no symptoms, and, and we have, you know, a fit force out there. So it is a little worrisome. Well, the military does have to find its own way through COVID-19 and adjust to that 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 reality. I believe it's trying to do that. It, it, it certainly, like the rest of us, has not been perfect in how it has anticipated or approached it, and it has been in some ways making it up on, on the way. But I, I certainly think that it has come, you know, a long, long way in a very short period of time to handling the, the reality of how do you maintain a, a ready uh, force across the board, whether it be, you know, land, air, or sea, which requires in many cases close quarters while still maintaining a public health precaution and addressing those uh, those situations where you actually do have COVID-19 tested service members. I think that things that they're doing are entirely appropriate. You know, full masks on aircraft carriers, uh, much more frequent disinfected uh, carrier-wide testing on a regular basis. Uh, those are the things that are going to be necessary going forward for our military. But, you know, let's also um, acknowledge that that the overall statistics that the military has presented indicate that, that it has a much lower level of, um, of infection and a, a much higher success rate once people are infected. So they do seem to be taking the necessary precautions as opposed to, you know, COVID-19 taking over the military. That was part of a conversation that we had with Democrat Congressman Ed Case this morning about COVID-related issues. And we now take the time to take a look across the globe. Another major European company looks to phase out of its lockdown and how the worldwide rise in unemployment is impacting a popular ride-sharing company, possibly affecting your ability to get where you need to go. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 6th of May. I'm Joe Lynham. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has reached a deal with regional leaders on relaxing the coronavirus lockdown. 
Uber is cutting 14% of its workforce worldwide and the European Commission has warned that the EU faces its worst economic downturn since the 1930s. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has thrashed out an agreement with regional leaders on relaxing the coronavirus lockdown. Jenny Hill has the details. Angela Merkel appeared cheerful, stating that falling infection rates meant that Germany could take some significant steps back towards normality. Shops will reopen, as will hotels and restaurants, under strict social distancing measures. Germany's football league will play again, albeit behind closed doors. Mrs Merkel has been under pressure from the leaders of Germany's 16 states, who are impatient to restart their local economies. In return for the relaxation of measures, the regional leaders have agreed that, should infections breach a certain number in a district, the local authorities must reimpose restrictions. The European Commission says Europe is experiencing its biggest economic shock since the Great Depression as a result of the pandemic. The EU's Commissioner for Economic Affairs, Paolo Gentiloni, was speaking in Brussels. It is now quite clear that the EU has entered the deepest economic recession in its history. The EU economy is expected to contract by a record 7.4% this year, 7.7% in the euro area, more than in 2009. And Mr Gentiloni warned that the outcome could be even worse than the forecast. He said that while all 27 economies would shrink, not all would be hit to the same degree. The ride-sharing platform Uber is cutting 14% of its jobs to ease severe losses caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Here's Michelle Flurry. Uber is to cut 3,700 full-time jobs from its customer support and recruiting teams, blaming economic uncertainty. Boss Dara Khosrowshahi will also waive his base salary for the rest of the year. Around 40% of Uber's staff is based in the United States. The rest are in other countries. It's not clear yet which geographic regions the cuts will come from. President Trump says the US Coronavirus Task Force, which he had indicated could be wound down, will now continue indefinitely. In a tweet, the president said the task force itself would continue with a, force, uh, with a focus on safety and the opening up of the country. A global charity has warned that Somalia is being overwhelmed by a spike in coronavirus cases. The International Rescue Committee said that there had been widespread community transmission and inadequate health care. Researchers in the Czech Republic, one of the first countries to go into lockdown, have found that hardly anyone in the country has been exposed to the coronavirus. Testing has revealed only 170 positive results for coronavirus antibodies out of more than 26,000 people. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has supported proposals by the mayor of Moscow to gradually ease coronavirus restrictions. The mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, said some businesses could return to work from the 12th of May. Climate experts say this year will see the biggest decline in carbon emissions ever recorded because of the pandemic. Emissions from the use of fossil fuels are expected to fall by up to 8%, a drop which could be six times bigger than that recorded during the financial crisis in 2008. Dr Peter Glick is the co-founder of the Pacific Institute in California. All over the world, we've seen some of these temporary improvements in air quality as our economies have suffered. But the key point is that they're temporary. And as the pandemic winds down when it does, as our economies ramp up, unless we're smart, we're going to go right back to the same kind of polluting economy we had a few months ago. Tens of thousands of students have returned to school in the Chinese province of Hubei, where the coronavirus pandemic began last December. Only pupils preparing for exams are being allowed back and some schools will remain closed. But the reopening marks an important milestone for China's worst affected region. The head of a charity which protects African wildlife, Tusk, says the coronavirus pandemic is the biggest threat to conservation in his 30 years of working in the sector. The number of coronavirus cases across Africa is relatively low, but despite this, the tourism industry has collapsed. Charlie Mayhew said his organisation expected to lose $2 million from cancelled fundraising events alone. This is definitely the biggest threat that we've seen to the conservation world uh, in the 30 years that I've been uh, working you know, in it. You know, we've had the, the real pressure from the illegal wildlife trade, and that is ongoing. There are also reports of an increase in poaching and the loss of income for wildlife reserves makes it harder to pay for rangers and to protect the animals. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
On our segment that we call The Long View, our political analyst Neil Milner examines the idea that moderates, conservatives, and liberals are reacting to this health and economic crisis differently. How are you doing there, Neil? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? We're, we're, we're just fine, too. <laughs> yeah, we're both still fine, but not happy. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just thought this, uh, this idea was interesting. Well, the idea is that the question is, what difference does your political ideology make in terms of how you respond to the, the virus? And um, it's a kind of interesting and complex mix. But there are two things that I had referred to when I sent you some information. And one, said, one shows that, that liberals and conservatives behave or at least act very differently in regard to how they respond to this, that in terms of, you know, the everyday kinds of things that you do, washing your hands and, and um, not touching your face and not making visits to lots of places, there seems to be a difference between liberals and conservatives. Conservatives are less likely to do that. And moderates are somewhere in between, and liberals worry much more about the uh, coronavirus than conservatives. And you'd expect this because over time, health issues have become kind of politicized on the basis of liberal or conservative. You see that in vaccinations, and you see that in climate change. But here's the thing. If you look at other research about ideology, and you, you can interpret it this way, there may be differences, and Republicans and conservatives, since they're almost the same now as Democrats and liberals are the same, they grumble more about it, but there's a very high level, a very high level of unanimity between Democrats, Republicans, and, and conservatives and, and uh, moderates, that is, voters, on how serious this is, um, there's a high degree of unanimity about being very cautious about going back to work. Um, and there is a high level of support for governors, with a couple of exceptions, one of which is in Hawaii, where the governors have varied in terms of how to do this, but they've been pu putting these things on. So as we stand at this moment, okay, which is a very fluid moment, it appears that yeah, there are differences on ideology, and they're just what you expect. And the biggest difference is on approval in regard to Trump. There's an enormous difference, just as there is that about 85% of Republicans support what Trump is doing, approve of what Trump is doing on the virus, and maybe 12, 13, 14%, depending on the poll. That's the difference. But overall, there still is a high level of consensus and very little support, even among conservative Republicans for this kind of political protest that has started. We saw a very small scale of it here, but where people, you know, hundreds or thousands of people have picketed, violating the rules in front of state capitals, where, where folks with guns went into the Michigan legislature. There's very low level of support. So that's it in a nutshell. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny. I mean, here it is May, and I just remember thinking back toward the beginning of the year, I think that everybody's initial reaction was just fear, right? Because there was just so much oh, yeah. we didn't know oh, yeah. about this yeah. disease. And so you have the health issues, but then uh, the the economic issues that have just kind of, uh, uh, you know, gone along with it. Well, that's right. And and uh, the if you look at the overall trend of, of people's attitudes and behavior from, let's say, late February to March, um, it changed when the initial, uh, when it became kind of initially that we were all going to be locked up for a while, at least all of us, except for eight states uh, where they didn't have any such order. But then it kind of leveled off. Uh, it hasn't changed that much, but there is definitely now an increase in concern about, uh, uh, about the economic side of it. We're clearly in a different stage, I think, as far as public opinion is concerned. And this is what some of the public opinion experts are now starting to say that you're in a situation right now where there's a pretty high level degree of unanimity, more, more grumbling on the part of conservatives, uh, a little more fear on the part of liberals, but there still is a high level of consensus that we have to proceed very cautiously. We shouldn't open up very quickly. But you see two things happening. One is the protests that want to open up more immediately, okay, and I just said that that's 
they're protests, and uh, protests don't necessarily need a majority. No political protest ever has a majority when they start, or they wouldn't need to protest. But they're still not, they overwhelmingly do not have support among conservatives or liberals. But here's the thing. What may make a difference, uh, and maybe has started to already, is that what you might call conservative elites, uh, conservative politicians, um, people who are identified as kind of movers and shakers in business who are identified with the Republican Party, the talk about moving more quickly may affect it. And I'll give you a real graphic example of how a conservative elite uh, statement can, and I say may, I should say, affect things. Yesterday, in a, in a, a Wisconsin Supreme Court hearing about whether that the hearing challenges the governor's right to have stay-at-home orders. It's a basic challenge. Wisconsin has had protests. It's exceptional in that sense. One of the conservative judges said publicly that these stay-at-home orders are a form of tyranny, and they're like the Japanese internment. So, you know, you don't, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. I mean, I think it's definitely wrong. But when the language gets raised to that level by people who are not the folks picketing on the street, then you begin to wonder, is that going to affect, um, let's say, the, the Republicans by moving more in the direction of moving faster? But where we are, that's where we are right now. Well, you tell us more about the study. I mean, how broad was it? Well, um, there are two studies that I refer to. One's pretty small scale. It's national. Um, and that's the one that's, uh, that is uh, appeared in an open source place, which I mean, I think it's actually pretty good. Uh, open source means it hasn't been peer-reviewed. There's a lot of COVID-19 research that goes into this because it's fast-moving, and it's the fastest way to get things out there, and then people who are also experts in the field get to read it. The other study is huge and maybe the most comprehensive. The other study is uh, uh, based on a, a sample of 22,000 people across the U.S. Um, that ask uh, really thorough stuff, and that one uh, just, they, I don't know when they finished probably third week in April. They went public with it on, on April 30th. It's really very well done. And one of the things that it allows is because the sample is so big, you can do some state-by-state -state stuff. And so we know stuff about Hawaii there. That's a study that uh, if you want to rely on one versus the other, that's the more uh, the higher quality study. But the over, if you take the two together, there still is this notion of high level of agreement on what to be done, a fairly high level of unanimity on caution, and a greater concern now developing on the economic issues. So it's an interesting point in our kind of political thing in this incredibly partisan environment that we live in, this polarized partisan environment we live in. There's always this pressure to, to see everything in partisan terms, the way, they, the way we see uh, the president. But it's not at that point yet. Uh, there still is these other mitigating factors. So I think that, and, and if you look at the, the 22,000 uh, person study, you really see some very interesting uh, uh, state differences. And I'll give you a little tease here because I'm trying to write about this and figure it out. Uh, Hawaii's governor, Ige, does terribly in these, uh, in these polls. The average governor... Um, in the United States uh, has a, 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 an approval rating 22 points higher than Donald Trump's, which is 66 to 42. There's probably been a bump in these governors of about, say, 10%, pretty much as a result of their handling of this. David Ige is the least popular governor in the United States on handling the viruses in a state in which our Trump support is very low. It's a very Republican state, a very Democratic state. Ige's uh, difference between the Trump approval rating and, um, and his rating is 7%, one-third of what the average governor's is. And to try to figure out what's going on there in a state that, you know, in a state here that really hasn't had a relatively a fairly um, low level of coronavirus, that's for another time um, and uh, but but as I say, overall, you can see how the ideology plays out here. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Though uh, I'm sure we will 
hear and see more about this. But oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, you know, you and I both wish we didn't, but we will. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. We've been talking with political analyst Neil Milner about whether our political views drive our response to the COVID crisis. for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Marco Werman with The World. Most of us are looking forward to getting our lives back to normal. There are lessons to learn from places around the globe where restrictions are being lifted. Our reporters and producers are keeping track as countries restart their economies and try to keep people safe and healthy. How other governments handle the pandemic, we keep you updated on the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. The astounding record number of jobless claims and Hawaii's inability to process those checks to get them out to the people who need them. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats, Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, we've just been hearing so much about this. And, and the article that you were showcasing today really does a deep dive on what kind of equipment we've got. Yeah, the, the kind of equipment we got is something of another day, something yes. of another era. This is Marcel Honoré's story. In fact, Scott Murakami, who leads the Department of Labor and Industrial Relations here, calls it antiquated. We're talking about the the mainframe, the IT system that the Labor Department uses, our Labor Department, to handle claims. And it's it's from the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was president, as, as Marcel <laughs> notes in his story. Pac-Man was a yes. cutting-age video game technology. Remember Pac-Man? Um, but the... The system has not changed. And so what you have now, as we all have heard, nearly a quarter of a million people in Hawaii have applied for uh, unemployment benefits since COVID came to town. And only about 93,000 of those claims have been paid so far, at least as of uh, Marcel's report this morning. And the reason has a lot to do with the fact that this system, which it doesn't even have a mouse. Remember, it doesn't use (laughs) mouses. If you want to move the cursor, you actually have to use the keyboard in order to, to direct it, right? Like it's like it's an old Wang or something or an old IBM. And because of that, it is very labor, manual labor intensive. Well, you know, I recall when the Labor Department uh, director, you know, was talking with us in anticipation of yeah. uh, the, the, the layoffs. And he thought that they were going to be able to handle it because they had tried to modernize. They had. And, yeah, there's been a long recognition going over the last few decades that the IT system for the state government itself is not a good one. I won't speak about the counties, but definitely that is the case at at the state government level. Uh, And still, the Labor Department was trying to come up with a way to modernize their system. In fact, they were going to work with Idaho. Idaho is actually one of the states that has a pretty good system. Hawaii was going to migrate uh, its data over to its cloud. They have a cloud system, right? Not a mainframe from the 80s, but a cloud system. And it was going to cost us a couple of million dollars. But COVID came to town, and and the Labor Department locally then had to really respond to, uh, you know, to all those people trying to to get their payments, and that's become the priority since then. Now we're looking probably, according to the Labor Department, not until next year, 2021, we will see possibly getting improved technology. So we are stuck with the system that we have for now. Well, I love how in the story you you uh, uh, folks have uh, mentioned that there was a, a personal relationship that a Labor right. Department employee had with her counterpart in Idaho. Correct. And we should tell you that part of this really is uh, the federal government, the federal Labor Department to blame. This, and the reason is, is um, they're the ones who uh, would help 
uh, improved technology for the particular states, but that's going to cost 50 to $60 million a pop, and that's a heck of a lot of money. We should say Hawaii is not the only state that's having problems with its IT system for, for claims, over half the states, but, but not Idaho. And what you can do, what the federal government has actually encouraged, is working with other states to, to come up with a way to, uh, if you will, share the burden and approve things. And that was what Hawaii was going through. That was the plan uh, until COVID came to town. Right. And I know there's still lots of people that are waiting for their checks. Yes, there are. I think we mentioned 93,000 at the at the top of the report, and hopefully there'll be a report on that. I should say this this whole IT problem goes beyond just the Labor Department. There was actually discussion right after the Great Recession, you know, the last time we went through a really tough time economically, where maybe Hawaii could overhaul several departments' IT systems. And they were even looking at combining DLIR, that's Department of Labor and Industrial Relations, Department of Human Services, Department of Health, all at the state level. Maybe they could somehow share a data portal uh, but and then, you know, make it a lot easier for people to go online and fill out the forms that are necessary to, to work with government. There just wasn't not enough buy-in for that. At the time, one wonders whether there might be... Hmm, some impetus going forward that, you know, it is time to really get this system up to up to speed. Right. And I know the previous governor talked about, you know, we need to modernize and boy, are we feeling the pain now. Yeah, I'm not even going to go into the tax <laughs> systems, right? There was a whole tax modernization. They've made some progress in that regard. But David Ige, an engineer by training, uh, does recognize But it, there's a problem, but it comes down to money and manpower. All so. right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Civil Beat, uh, uh, Beat's political and opinion editor, Chad Blair, with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read more about the story, visit civilbeat.org. All this week, uh, we've been looking at higher education and how colleges are looking to resume in-person classes for the fall semester. We heard from University of Hawaii President David Lassner yesterday. Today, we hear from Chaminade President Lynn Babington, who has a, an extensive background in nursing administration. We're very fortunate here at Chaminade that we had just the timing of our spring break. We had about a week with our faculty to be able to help all of them transition to an online format for cl- course delivery. Now. Chaminade's been in the online business for many years as we've been a a major provider of online education to the military here in Oahu and when they're stationed abroad. So we already have the technology platforms, we have the people in place that are instructional designers, et cetera. So we're very lucky. That being said, we had to work with a number of faculty who have never taught online to make sure that our offerings were robust and replicated as best possible on situations in the classroom. I think we've done amazingly well, actually, and part of it is because of our size. I'm sure of that. Our largest classes are about 20 people. So when you're a faculty member and you might have 12, 15 people in the class, you know those students. They know you. You've already developed a relationship, in this case, since you were meeting on in person at the beginning of the semester. And so students didn't get lost. The faculty stayed in touch with the students to make sure that they're keeping up with their studies they're learning, they're achieving whatever the outcomes of the course were. So in some senses, I think it's been easier. And, you know, we have all kinds of student activities, Zoom and games and meditation and yoga and all kinds of stuff uh, to keep the students busy from a social perspective, too. But I do think our advantage is is that we're relatively small and we've always had very um, high touch point way of delivering education. So what's the plan for next semester? Because, you know, I've talked to a couple of students uh, who actually attend colleges on the mainland, and they're rethinking. We might just take a semester off because they're not real keen on this distance learning, and they don't think they're getting their money's worth. Well, and that's, of course, the challenge every all higher educational institutions find themselves in. In our case, we have submitted a plan to the governor's office and the mayor's office for, you know, unless things take a really bad turn, for being able to actually provide face-to-face learning following social distance guidelines. Again, the small help. 
we may have to pivot some of our classes to be held in larger classrooms and auditoriums to accommodate the number of students and the distancing required. But we submitted these plans and how that we can keep track of who's on campus and the health of people. And I'm very hopeful we'll be able to do that. We know there's a lot of students here in Hawaii that go to universities on the mainland. We're reaching out to those students and, you know, saying, why don't you come to Chaminade for a year or, you know, continue your education here. Try us out. We have great outcomes for our students. And these are students who may not have ever thought about staying on island, number one, or thought about Chaminade, number two. We're very transfer friendly. We've been working, actually, we've gotten support and a partnership with KCC to streamline the transfer process. We have a program with them called Two and Done. If students take a curriculum at KCC, they're guaranteed to come here and finish their education in two years. You know, this is providing they were full time. So we've been working very hard in the last few years with community colleges particularly, but several universities in California have recently closed and in Oregon, and we seamlessly transferred those students to us. So we feel pretty good about the transfer process. And, you know, our courses would transfer anywhere as long as the major uh, that somebody had was available, of course. We wanted to be prepared. We've looked at all our classroom availability. We've looked at a whole number of things. But to actually be proactive as well, this summer, our faculty in the next six weeks will be, every course will be reviewed so that it has a a very experiential, high-impact project at the end of the class, and that it's delivered at the state-of-the-art best practices online. And all the faculty are going through being certified as an online instructor because we know that even though next year might be totally in person, I don't know, the world's changing, and we want to be prepared to really offer the best education possible to our students. And because you have a health background, how are you looking at this pandemic pivot? Well, you know, interesting how things work out. We had already launched a program for the fall, and already students from high schools are applying to it or have been accepted into a Bachelor's of Science in Public Health. It's uh, funny that it happened at this time, and it really has three major tracks, one direct public health worker. The other is to organize, um, as people are doing now, to organize the contact tracers and systems like that. And the third track is really um, uh, with a focus on data. And we have a data analytics, data visualization program. And, and those types of people are the folks now that are helping us determine when the curves are flattening, when we can potentially mitigate some of the restrictions or lift some of the restrictions. So it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that we already had that plan. Also, we had planned uh, in December or January, we're launching a doctorate of nursing practice program with a focus as a nurse practitioner. And we know that even before this pandemic hit, that Hawaii has a, a real lack of primary care practitioners. And the physician nurse practitioner team really is a wonderful opportunity to expand primary care practice here, here in the state. So we already had those. We also in collaboration with all of our healthcare community partners, the hospitals, major healthcare systems, even the insurers, some of the skilled nursing and Kapuna homes. We launched last year a master's business in healthcare administration because they said we need people with a business background that are in healthcare and understand um, healthcare. So we have that going as well. And one of our specialties in, um, as a certificate is in healthcare uh, data analytics, wow. data visualization. So those are the things that we already had underway. And as you know, there'll be a lot more interest, I do believe, in, in the field of healthcare as we move uh, forward. And our community partners say we just need people with broad range of knowledge and experience to help us deliver programs, to help us design and evaluate programs, write grants to support programs. And another area that we're very well established in and unfortunately has come to a major light now during this challenging time is mental health behavioral health issues. We have um, master's programs in uh, marriage and family therapy, in 
counseling mental health and school counseling. We're launching a program with the DOE uh, in school psychology educational specialist, which is around that area. And last year when Argosy University closed, we took over their program in clinical psychology. So we have a the PsyD, a Doctorate of Clinical Psychology program. We have about 100 students in that program, and those are currently, they're providing mental health services in all the community centers around the state, but they also, those are our future clinical psychologists. So if there are folks who may have lost jobs and are wondering, maybe now's the time to go back to school and get into a different profession, healthcare could be it. Yeah, healthcare could be it in any of these. We've, of course, at the undergraduate level, we've opened up our admissions and extended admissions. Typically, May 1 is when students usually make decisions about college. We've extended that through the summer. We've been holding virtual webinars and open houses. We have student panels, faculty panels, and we've had a just great attendance. Actually, I'm a little surprised. We have virtual tours with students walking around campus, somebody in their dorm room showing all the amenities of the dorm. For the graduate students that you're talking about, we also, this we had before this started, but we have a $5,000 scholarship for new students to begin graduate programs. You know, we're hoping to to showcase a little bit about the success of our students. We have um, articulation agreements with 21 different postgraduate universities for medical school, dental, veterinary school, osteopathic, and, and as well as um, pharmacy and a bunch of these other programs. So we have a lot of students already heading out that are graduating, but one of our students was just awarded a, a one-year fellowship before she starts an MD-PhD program to work in Fauci's office. Fauci, that would be Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has been front and center of this COVID-19 White House Task Force. So what an opportunity for one of Hawaii's own to get a front row seat in this global health crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at HPR where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, bridging the gap to evening jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka on Hawaii Island, dedicated to providing aesthetically tailored eyelid, facelift, and rhinoplasty surgery. Online at a-new-face.com. If there's a will, there's a way. Today, we talk about how teachers on the neighbor island solved a problem that was getting in the way of distance learning. HBR's Ku'uve Hirishi joins us this morning with the story. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, we did reach out to uh, Hawaiian immersion preschool teachers over in Hanamaui, so we do know how far <laughs> the road is to Hana. As you can imagine, some of the uh, internet there is also very spotty, and so distance learning was a challenge, um, but but I first wanted to touch on uh, just the idea of having to design assignments for parents to use at this time when, like we heard from parents last week, uh, when the parent doesn't speak Hawaiian, right? And so having teachers design curriculum around that 
um, sort of language gap has been something that has been challenging. So in uh, reaching out to uh, Kaimana Kabibi, he is the uh, teacher over at Punanalea Ohana, a uh, language immersion preschool, but he's also a father. And so in talking to him about how he designs his assignments with that in mind, uh, here's a little bit about uh, what he had to say. So he tries to simplify basically the lesson plan so that parents don't outright get frustrated with their children because they can't understand what it is that they, they are doing. So one of the ways in which, and we were talking about this earlier, he's decided to do that is to make it fun, but also have the language component to it, was to actually come up with an hour-long daily radio program that they broadcast from the old, so 96.3 Coco FM over there in Hana, out of the old uh, courthouse is where it's broadcast, low-power radio. It's actually a very uh, interesting setup, and he does this Monday through Friday. Uh He goes through the daily protocol of chants and songs, things that the preschoolers uh, be, have become accustomed to in the classroom, but then they'll tune in on their radio, or uh, if they have internet, they can live stream as well. Uh, but it does allow not just the preschoolers to get the lessons that they would normally get on a daily basis, but it has actually brought in a lot of Hana residents who are sort of eager because it's it's conducted entirely in Olalo Hawaii, right? So this hour long of just being exposed to the language. Uh has really kind of taken it outside of just the preschooler circles, um, but at that level, allowing folks to uh, be exposed to the language as well. I just love that idea, you know, sitting there uh, uh, and, and listening to this with your family and just, just have the exposure is great. Yeah, and, uh, the you know, at first it was sort of this big challenge. Okay, what are we going to do? Our kids don't have internet. How do we get to them? And so adapting, as we said, as as COVID-19 has kind of forced all of us to do in our in our daily lives, uh, this was an interesting uh, adaptation for this teacher. I wanted to give you guys a, just a little clip of uh, sort of the beginning of his show that he did uh, last week. Uh, here's a little listen. He does have some of his uh, preschoolers actually call in, or he does have them on the radio, and they kind of, you know, we're like, oh my God, I'm I'm on the radio, and this this is part of my learning, and so it will be interesting to see whether or not they're going to continue this. Uh, after, uh, I guess, normal, the the, the new normal uh, comes back in. Uh, I know that in speaking, we've got about 12 Hawaiian uh, language immersion preschools uh, statewide, these Punanaleos, about 330 students. So since uh, COVID-19 classrooms have been closed, but teachers have sort of uh, tried to be there for their students, some holding uh, Zoom classes an hour a day, maybe three times a week. This has been uh, one of the more active or proactive uh, preschools that I've seen having that hour-long radio program every day, Monday through Friday, plus the three, you know, uh, Zoom sessions. And so, um, but because tuition dollars weren't uh, coming in, they did have to lay off um, each preschool, had to look at, you know, whether or not they could financially keep staffers and teachers on. So there were teachers that we did speak to that were let go, you know, like uh, a lot of the other businesses, they they weren't immune to this. Uh, but it was interesting in speaking to Evaliko Liotta, uh, he is a former, I guess, sort of in limbo, Punanaleo Oko'olaupoko teacher, a Kahana resident here on Oahu, who did get, uh, you know, who did lose his job because of this. Um, but interestingly enough, he has not gotten, you know, he continues to be a presence in his uh, preschoolers' live, uh, lives by joining in on those Zoom sessions, okay. even though he's not getting paid and even though he didn't get uh, his unemployment check yet. But here's Leota uh, talking about that. So he, he's saying that he's he'll try to get in as much uh, Zoom time or FaceTime with the kids as he can just to 
give them that sense of normalcy of you know continuing to see the faces that they've always seen so he does participate in zoom at least two or three uh, times a week and i asked him if you know is this changing things for you are you going to con- continue to work in this line of work knowing that you know if something should ever happen you're going to lose your job again and he said he is very much dedicated uh to the ulelo and does plan uh in fact i actually they did get federal funds uh the ahapunanaleo which is the uh, advocacy organization that oversees all these preschools did get federal funds to rehire some of these teachers and so uh leota was one of uh several who have reapplied for their own positions and hoping uh to get to work in the next couple of weeks, but also prepare these preschools for reopening in August. So they will not be uh, going back into their classrooms until next fall, Um, but they are in the process of equipping these schools with everything that they would need, but they are waiting on guidelines or federal guidelines or state guidelines even on how you know, to do that? Are we going to need some strict social distancing or some form of social distancing? Um, And how can that play out in these preschool classrooms, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I applaud the innovation of (laughs) our teachers and the fact that this community said, okay, internet sucks. We're going to try radio. (laughs) So hats off to them. But thank you so much for this story. Mahalo. We have been exploring distance learning over this last week and a half, and today we are talking with HPR's Ku'uvehirishi about how one community on Maui rose to the occasion to find a way to make it all work. And you know, we are all out of time, but join us tomorrow as we continue our thread of distance learning and higher education. What's behind Hawaii Pacific University's new ad campaign? And what do you think about the plan to reopen small businesses? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR, or why don't you tweet us at HI Conversation. And, you know, email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation. Thank you.